Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Savante Myrick, president of People for the American Way, who examines the recent Republican vote to remove Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, a decision he believes was driven by bigotry and hate. Shaheen Rana, with Atlanta's Stop Cop City campaign, who talks about the police shooting death of forest protector Manuel Paez Tehran and the ongoing fight to stop construction of the divisive police training facility. And Max Rameau, a Pan-African theorist and author, who in the aftermath of the police murder of Tyree Nichols, advocates for the adoption of local decentralized community control over police departments and public safety. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. It's been 10 years since Egyptian General Abdel Fattah Sisi seized power in a coup. But a decade after the fragile democracy was crushed by the military, the Arab world's most populous nation's economy is failing. The government debt-to-GDP ratio hovers around 90 percent, while external debt has more than doubled since 2013. Debt service now consumes 45 percent of all government revenue. Egypt's currency has lost 50 percent of its value over the past year and may still plunge lower. The devaluation has stoked already high inflation, which hit 21 percent in December and 37 percent for food. Prices have doubled for meat and chicken, out of reach for the poor. The Economist magazine reports that the crash in Egypt's economy was triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when global investors pulled $22 billion out of the nation. Oil-rich Gulf states that propped up Egypt's economy a decade ago are now buying up the nation's lucrative assets on the cheap. There's even talk that General Sisi might sell or lease the operations of the Suez Canal to Gulf companies, which would be politically explosive, given that control of the canal is an important symbol of Egyptian independence. The Philippines Interior Secretary Benjamin Abalos, appointed by Ferdinand Marcos Jr., son of brutal dictator Ferdinand Marcos, asked all senior police officers in January to voluntarily hand in their resignations. Over 900 police generals and colonels complied in a public move to demonstrate that the government is addressing widespread drug corruption in its own ranks. But few human rights advocates expect an effective purge of corrupt police officials or any move toward police accountability for their involvement in summary executions and planting of evidence. Under the Philippines' previous president, Rodrigo Duterte, over 30,000 people were killed after the authoritarian leader launched his murderous and widely condemned war on drugs. Christina Conti of the National Union of People's Lawyers insisted that under Duterte, there was blanket tolerance of abuse. A recent scandal among police was exposed last October when two anti-narcotics officers took 42 kilos of methamphetamine worth over $5 million during a drug raid. 
Interior Secretary Abelow's statement that the names of police officers found to have links with drug traffickers would remain confidential has led many to believe that the so-called crackdown is nothing more than a public relations stunt. Scandal-plagued, pathological liar, New York Republican Representative George Santos has recused himself from his House committee assignments as federal and state investigations are conducted into allegations he violated campaign finance laws. Records show Santos has close ties to financier Andrew Intrater, who has given Santos and other Republican candidates tens of thousands of dollars since 2017. According to the Open Secrets Public Policy website, Intrader is a cousin and business associate of Russian billionaire Viktor Vexelberg, a close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin. The oligarch faced Western sanctions in 2018 and 2022 related to Moscow's annexation of Crimea and last year's invasion of Ukraine. According to the Washington Post, Intrader invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in a Florida-based investment firm where Santos once worked called Harbor City Capital, which regulators have accused of running a Ponzi scheme. Intrader's investment company, Columbus Nova, came under scrutiny in 2018 when a news report revealed that the company routed $1 million to former President Donald Trump's longtime lawyer, Michael Cohen, to pay hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels about her alleged affair with Trump. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In recent weeks, the narrow Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives voted to remove Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee for what embattled House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said were her past anti-Semitic statements. McCarthy had earlier purged California Representatives Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the House Intelligence Committee. While there were several dishonest reasons cited for these removals, it's clear that this was yet another case of partisan vengeance following the Democrats' 2021 removal of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their committees. Greene was removed for trafficking in racism, anti-Semitism, and baseless conspiracy theories, along with her support for online comments encouraging violence against Democratic officials prior to taking office. Democrats removed Gosar for sharing a violent animated video targeting Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and President Joe Biden. Republicans' decision to remove metal detectors that stood outside the House chamber and allow guns into committee rooms has put many legislators on edge, as has McCarthy's plan to hold the debt ceiling hostage to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Your reporter spoke with Savante Myrick, president of People for the American Way, who formerly served 10 years as the mayor of Ithaca, New York. Here he discusses his views on the House GOP vote to remove Representative Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the symbolism of hatred and bigotry 
that action carries. There was a poll from CNN last week that said that 50 percent of Republicans believe that the new House majority, the Republican majority in the House, is not focused on issues that are important to Americans. That's 50 percent of Republicans believe that. And of course, the majority of Democrats see it and independents see it, which is, you know, that they're not concerned about our families, about our economy. They're not concerned with fixing the real problems that we do have in this country, you know, climate change and out-of-control gun violence and snagged supply chains. They are focused on political retribution and passing non-binding resolutions denouncing socialism. It is a, and I want to be careful here. I, I do want to be careful here because it's not the entire party. What we're talking about here is the group of Republicans who have taken over the House, a small group of Republicans who, by asserting their dominance over Kevin McCarthy, will now control the agenda for these next two years. It is so far out of the mainstream, right, of even their own party, that it's really shameful for those of us who've been in government and care about good governance and want to solve people's problems to know that for the next two years, this Republican majority is not going to be focused on solving our problems. It's very frustrating. Absolutely. Let's, let's focus on Minnesota Democratic Representative Ilan Omar. It seems from her perspective and many people across the country, she was targeted because she's Muslim, because she's a woman, because she's black, and represents what many Republicans demonize over many decades. What do you think about uh, her expulsion from the Foreign Affairs Committee? And I should just say that what they've said in public as to their reasoning is that she had apologized for some remarks years ago where she was talking about the actions of APAC, the Israeli-U.S. Public Affairs Committee, that lobbies here in the United States on behalf of Israel. But it's interesting that many Republicans have uh, said far worse things in terms of their anti-Semitism and spoken at oh, uh, racist, white supremacists, even neo-Nazi rallies. Think about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene as one of those, but she's been rewarded yeah. for her extremist positions. Anyway, I, I go on and on. Why don't you uh, give us your take on Ilhan Omar? I happen to know Ilhan. I've known her for years. One of the things we do at People for the American Way is we run a program for young elected officials, people who are elected under the age of 35 and are progressive anywhere in the country. And she and I were both, I was 20 years old when I was elected to the city council, 24 when I was elected mayor. She was in her 20s when she was elected to the state government in Minnesota. And she is the kindest, smartest embodiment of the American dream. She came here and built not only a life for herself, but a voice for her community and is a very grounded, very humble leader. See the caricature that they've tried to create of her. Why? Because she wears a hijab, because she is a black woman, because she is a Muslim. It is, it is outright bigotry. The difference between who she is and who they pretend she is is a chasm so wide it can only be explained by bigotry. And I, I say this as somebody who my ties to the Jewish community are deep. And fighting against anti-Semitism is something I've done my entire professional life. If for even a moment I thought that Ilhan was anti-Semitic, I would say so. Uh, but I don't believe she is. She comes from a very specific background in that she uh, advocates for a community, but there is no hatred 
inside of her, and they know it. This caucus, who was cheering, is Kanye West and Donald Trump, their leader, met with an out-and-out Nazi over a Thanksgiving dinner in Nick Fuentes. The same caucus who was applauding that is now pretending, clutching their pearls, pretending that one badly worded tweet about APAC's financial influence is punishable by removing from a committee. I mean, this is this really is the worst kind of red scaremongering. This is, you know, McCarthyism from the 50s. And the shame of it all is that they truly have no shame. At long last, they truly, truly have no shame. And we are not going to forget it. I can tell you that the, the million-plus members of People for the American Way, the voters of Minnesota and voters across the country are going to remember this. And it will be, I hope, one of the many things that costs this irresponsible House majority the speakership two years from now in 2024. That was Savante Myrick, president of People for the American Way. Find more analysis and commentary on recent actions of the Republican-controlled House of Representatives by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The fight to save an urban forest in Atlanta, Georgia, and stop construction of a $90 million police training facility received nationwide attention when a young forest protector was killed by police on January 18th. Police from several local, state, and federal jurisdictions violently cleared campers and tree-sitters from the forest and reported that Manuel Paez Tehran fired on them from inside a tent, wounding one officer. Police then shot Tehran more than a dozen times. Police officials stated that the bullet that wounded the officer came from a gun registered to Tehran, but that there was no video of the shooting. Paez Tehran espoused nonviolence, and his family and friends are questioning the official story. Protesters arrested have been charged with misdemeanors such as trespassing, and in mid-December, six activists were charged with domestic terrorism. The city of Atlanta leased hundreds of acres of the forest, which abuts a lower-income neighborhood whose residents are largely people of color, to the Atlanta Police Foundation, or APF, for construction of what opponents call Cop City, where 43% of the police departments that will train there come from outside the state of Georgia. A permit was issued last week to begin construction. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Shaheen Rana, a local resident who opposes the project. Here she describes what happened after Paez Tehran, who went by his activist name Tortuguita, was killed, and opponents plan to continue to fight the project. First and foremost, the community is feeling a heavy loss, right? Like we're, we're collectively grieving. This movement is a, a mass movement. I think it's important to recognize that, that, you know, even if people were not sitting in the trees and living in the forest, there are like literally hundreds and hundreds of people who are a part of this movement. Even if we don't all know each other intimately, we feel like a community, you know? So the community is is collectively grieving. But at the same time, the community is legitimately angry and enraged, right? It's been a lot to deal with all of that. But, you know, because we are a community, we are all also relying on each other and supporting and caring for each other. This hasn't in any way 
weakened our resolve to stop Cop City. If anything, it's it's strengthened it because Trotigida's death and the the accompanying state repression of charging people with domestic terrorism shows exactly why it is that we're trying to stop Cop City, why we are fighting against this. Uh, this is exactly what we feared, that the state's repression tactics would get so extreme that they will kill someone just for dissenting. And that's exactly what has happened. And then they will try to suppress further dissent by trying to scare people that they will cage them and imprison them for essentially the, the entirety of their lives, right? Because domestic terrorism charges come with up to 35 years in prison. And that is ludicrous. Even the people that stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, were not charged with domestic terrorism. What I've seen of the Stop Cop City people is that basically they're saying there's a lot of questions still, and they want an, invest an independent investigation that doesn't involve any of the police departments that carried out the raid. Can you update us at all on that? Is that, is that moving along, or is that everybody just ignoring that demand? There is legal representation for the family to press forward that demand because that's the family's demand and as far as an update goes an independent autopsy revealed that Trotigida was shot 13 times that already is putting holes in the police's story we know that the police lie all the time and this incident from the beginning has had a lot of questions and concerns Georgia State Patrol says that their body cameras were not on why why do you have body cameras if you're not leaving them on, right? Like, which just goes to show that there's no reforming this institution. There's going to be a week of action in Atlanta, uh, March 4th through the 11th. What do you hope or what do you think, you know, might happen to try to shed light on what's been going on? So the idea behind the week of action since the beginning of this movement has always been for people to feel like they can take ownership of this movement and put together something that feels right and good to them. So the week of actions, of course, have had marches and protests and rallies, but they've also had care workshops. They've also had creative art workshops, right? And I think that those are the things that don't get as much media attention or don't get talked about as much, but they're just as important. When people ask us, well, what, what is the alternate to policing then? These week of actions are, are trying to show people the world that we are trying to create. There have been conflict resolution trainings during the week of actions. So there have been marches by the preschool network where children have put the marches together, making signs that say things like, we love trees, please don't cut down our trees. You know, there have been community barbecues, there have been songwriting workshops. It's, it, it's beautiful the way the community shows in varying ways that what we want is not money going towards tools of state violence and repression, but those resources going towards building community. That was Shaheen Rana, an activist with a Stop Cop City campaign. For more information on planned protests in Atlanta in March and other actions across the U.S. in February, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
last month's police murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, and the recent release of video recordings of five police officers' deadly assault on the 29-year-old black man, has renewed a nationwide debate on how to address police violence. The May 2020 police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis provoked thousands of protests across the U.S., demanding an end to police violence targeting communities of color and a new system of accountability for law enforcement. But there's been little substantive change. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was passed by the Democratic-controlled House in March 2021, but was blocked by Senate Republicans. The legislation had a number of provisions supported by advocates of police reform, but for many others it didn't go far enough. Now, as many Americans are once again focused on addressing the issues of police violence, your reporter spoke with Max Rameau, a Haitian-born Pan-African theorist, campaign strategist, organizer, and author. Here, Max assesses the public policy options that are being proposed to rein in police violence, while advocating for the adoption of new systems of local decentralized community control to reimagine and re-envision the very nature of policing itself. I agree that there's an ongoing debate that has resurged, and we've seen this happen over time. Of course, this, it happened in a big way with the Rodney King beating uh, in 92, uh, and it, it's, it's just continued uh, since then. Of course, it happened before then as well. Uh, I think one, one thing that, that is a relatively new trend uh, that I think we're going to see more of is that we've seen large segments of the black community which have stopped debating about reforming the police. So there are these calls, for, for example, to defund the police, uh, which are some questions as to whether or not that would work for a number of reasons on a number of different sides. But that is a great example, I think, of where people have stopped saying, okay, these are the laws we should change. These are the policies we should change. Uh, there's no longer a debate in a huge segment of the black community about reforming the police because we think that history has borne out that that is not going to be effective. For, for those of us who are looking for really different solutions, this is a, a good moment for those uh, who think that they uh, want to or can reform the police. This has got to be a low moment for folks who are thinking about ways of, of reforming the police because there's segments of the population now who don't, literally don't think that that's possible. Where I think the debate can and should be going and will increasingly be going will be in the area of not changing the police in terms of changing policies in terms of changing uh, you know, certain laws about how the police interact with, with people, but change was actually in charge of the police, both in a real sense, but also in an implied sense. We've seen this happen several times, of course, with several white cops beating up on, uh, on black motorists or, or even non-motorists, beating them to, to death. What we haven't seen is groups of cops, particularly black cops, beating up white people. And I don't think it's because there's no black cops who don't like white people is because the black cops know that they can't do that and get away with it. Even they know on a subconscious level, even if nothing else, that they're not working for the black community and they're not able to do certain things to white people that they are able to do to, to black people. And that really is a question of who then is actually in charge on whose behalf is the police operating. 
Uh, and I think what we need to change ultimately is who the police is fundamentally working for in an overt way and also in a more social way, you know, in, a, uh, in an implied way. I think that's where the debate is going, and that's why we're calling for community control of the police, not because we want to reform a police department or a series of the police departments, but because the only way to really change it is to change who they actually work for, to change the person who is paying the piper. Max, I wanted to ask you uh, to talk specifically about what are some of the models of community control of police departments? I'm guessing that's apart from some of the citizen review commissions or civilian complaint review boards that exist in many cities where citizens do have some input and oversight powers on certain police departments. But maybe you can give us some of the models that you think work best and uh, maybe examples of those models in operation across the country. So there are not many examples of this model uh, that we're talking about across the, the country. Uh, when we call now the, the civilian review boards, you know, what they do is they take a system that's already working in a particular way, and that is police departments, and then they, they review what those police have already done. And in some cases, they have the right to make recommendations. In some cases, they don't have that right. In no case do they have the right to fire people, fire police who are murdering people. Uh, but in some cases, they have some right to levy some kind of disciplinary action. That is not the same as control. And that is not what we're calling for. And in the late 1960s, the Black Panther Party called for community control over police, and they actually put it on the ballot in two cities, in Berkeley, California, and in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. In both instances, they lost. Millions of dollars were mobilized, even at that time in 1968, 1969, were mobilized in order to fight against those ballot initiatives. And what they said is that those cities should be divided up into policing districts, and those policing districts could be made up from scratch, or they could overlay exactly political districts or wards, and that then each district would get to vote and say, we want to keep the existing police department that we have, or we don't like this police department, we don't have control over this police department, we want our own police department that follows the orders of those who live inside of the policing districts. Now, we have a few differences between the way we're thinking about it and the way the Black Panther Party was thinking about it, but the fundamental idea is the same, is that police departments should be democratized uh, and that they should be run, they should be controlled by, not some oversight at the end or some review process, but that local communities should have the ability to hire the police they want, to tell those police that this is the way we want you to enforce laws. These are the laws that we want you to focus on. These are the laws we don't want you to focus on. And then if the police don't do that, they would have the ability to fire those individual police officers or even order those individual police officers arrested for uh, breaking the law. Uh, and that would represent control. At that point, review boards would seem like you know, child's play in comparison. This would be the real democratization of uh, these forces that are allowed to carry guns allowed to deprive us of our liberty and sometimes even able to, uh, to kill us. That was Max Rameau, a Haitian-born Pan-African theorist, campaign strategist, organizer, and author. Find links to Max's writing on community control over law enforcement by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFA in Jamestown, New York, WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, KUGS in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>